This morning we're going to be back in John, John's Gospel, one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life and teachings, one of the fullest accounts of how Jesus represents the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel, and one of the most easy to connect with even now, 2,000 years later, in its description of what Jesus offers to us, to each one of us, to each one of you sitting right where you are. What we get to this morning in John chapter 2, we're going to be in the first half or so of John chapter 2, what we get to in this passage is the first of several stories that John tells us about Jesus, stories that he puts in the category of signs. The word sign is going to be very important for John. Now we're used to, if you're you're familiar at all with stories about Jesus' life and ministry in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, You're familiar with Jesus doing amazing, miraculous things. You're familiar with Jesus walking on water, healing people who have leprosy, giving sight to the blind. And John includes miracles like that too. But in John, they come with a different twist. John doesn't call his miracle stories miracle stories. He calls them signs. John chooses to relate to us a very specific number of very specially chosen signs, things that Jesus did that John chooses to tell us about because they say something about what Jesus came to do. That in in microcosm, these signs point to something bigger than themselves. So we, we celebrated Valentine's Day on Friday and some of my favorite Valentine's memories are from growing up. My family had this tradition where it was sort of a family holiday. It was less about the uh, it was less a romantic holiday than a family holiday, a chance to love on each other. And one of our traditions was a treasure hunt every year. So my mom would write up clues, you know, with special rhymes, hide the clues all around the house, and you'd go from one to the other to the other to the other till at the very end is sort of a pot of gold, a pot of, you know, delicious tooth-decaying surprises. And that's one of the best analogies that I've seen for what John's trying to do here. Is he's, he's taking us in his, in his story on a treasure hunt. And all along this treasure hunt are special clues. Clues that he's written into the story as miraculous, often miraculous things that Jesus did, but that are more than just the thing itself. They, they, they picture something. Another way of describing it that I've come across is that each one of these signs is like a parable. Like a parable that, it, that portrays something about what Jesus came to do. A parable of, one scholar put it, the nature of his work. They're not just impressive displays of power, but symbols of something deeper. And this one that we're going to come to today is, is even more important. Because it's the first. And you know, any good campaign, right, a political campaign, somebody's going to announce that he's running for something. You know that that, that announcement event where your campaign begins for all to see Everything about it matters, right? The location of it matters. It has symbolic importance about what kind of candidate you're going to be or something about your past that's going to, that, that shapes the way you're going you're to govern if you get elected. It, the, the things that are said, the, the, the font choices, the color schemes, all of it is weighted with symbolic power at the very beginning because it says something about who you're going to be. So now imagine Jesus coming onto the scene, his first sign that he does. It's huge. It's a kind of calling card, one person, as one put it. A kind of calling card. Here's what I came to do. Let me show you through this one event. And it's going to surprise you, I think. It's going to surprise you because this isn't exactly what I would have thought Jesus would have, where I would have thought Jesus would have started. 
And we know about Jesus doing things like walking on water, calming storms with the word, healing people who were born blind. We know about Jesus even giving life to the dead. But for his calling card, for his first sign, a sign that's going to picture everything he's about, he chooses a wedding in an obscure town and a miracle that would be seen by only a few people and a miracle that even for those few people wouldn't convince all of them. He chooses as his calling card to turn water into wine. What's that about? That's the question for us today. Now, what I want to do is, is first walk through the story, try to make sure the, detail, the details of it are clear, that we can follow the twists and turns of it together. And then I want to come back and take a second pass and say, okay, what about this story serves as a sign? What can we learn from these details about what Jesus is going to do? How does it speak to us about the nature of his work? How does it help us now, 2,000 years later, to savor what Jesus came to bring and to look ahead with hope to what he will bring to us on the last day? That's where we're going to head this morning. I want to begin by reading the story. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from uh, John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Here's the story. Let's walk through the details together. The action left off last week, chapter 1, with Jesus and his disciples, his first followers in Galilee. And that's where we pick back up here, at a wedding. The scene is a wedding in a town called Cana. Jesus and his mother and all of his disciples get invited. So maybe it was a close friend of the family. It's not a stretch to imagine that. Jesus was raised in Galilee. Now, the first thing we've got to be drawn into here, if we're going to connect with the power of this story, is the significance of weddings at this time. Um, I feel like... Sometimes we're prone to think that things in our time are ridiculously more complicated than they used to be. And in some ways, that's probably true in some areas. Uh, you know, the ability to, to travel so much more freely, the transportation is a lot easier than it used to be, food's easier to come by, the kind of things that used to dominate life back then are easy now, and so we fill our lives with lots of other stuff. 
But I don't think weddings have really changed. This is one area where it's just always been a complicated mess. They're complicated now for sure, right? There is, there is the detailed etiquette governing everything about the wedding and all that leads up to it. There is etiquette for where guests get seated and when they get seated, for what sort of music gets played, for what sorts of paper the invitation should go out on and how the address should look on the envelope that people are going to throw away, what gets worn based on what time the ceremony is, how much there is to drink and what there is to drink. All of it, all of it is attached to social norms, right? To expectations that society has placed on this event And attached to these norms, of course, is a kind of status, right? You have got skin in the game as a person pulling off a wedding. How well you correspond to the norms depends on how people are going to view you. Now, the ladies among you out there, fathers of daughters among you out there, are squirming right now where you sit, aren't you? Well, the only thing I'll say is, it wouldn't have been your problem back then. It was the problem of the groom, The groom's family is responsible for all these details. But other than that, it's pretty much the same in the ancient world as it is now. Weddings were a big, complicated mess. Now, in first century Palestine, you could argue that they were even more complicated because it was common for weddings to stretch on for an entire week. The wedding wedding ceremony, such as it was, I'm not even sure exactly, I never came across any details about what the actual ceremony would be. Uh, But the main thing was that it was a feast. It was a week-long party for all your friends and family. It was a serious party and in an honor and shame culture like this one, how well everything came off was crucial. People knew you. They knew your family. They were going to keep on knowing your family. Their kids were going to know your family. Their kids' kids were going to know your family. And your, your name was attached to the quality of your party. And at the center, at the center of all great parties in first century Palestine, in that culture, was plenty of good wine. Now, that brings you directly into the crisis of this story. Because this wedding is not over yet, but they have run out of wine. They are on the verge of devastating shame. And just so you don't, just so you don't miss the weight of shame that was attached to this act. There's some evidence, scholars point to, that the, that the groom who was responsible for the, for, the, for the party, that he could actually be subject to a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit for running out of wine. That the bride's family, who would be kind of bound up in this shame, could bring suit and win it because the groom failed to provide enough wine. That's what's on the line as we enter into this story. Jesus' mother, having compassion, maybe some sort of even responsibility for the, for the, uh, for the party, is afraid for the groom's family. Either way, whether, whether she was responsible for the party or just friendly, she wants to help and she knows that her son has the power. So her simple statement here at the beginning of the story is a plea for help, really. She just says, they have no wine. What she's asking is, Can you do something to help us? Jesus' response to Mary, uh, it's a mysterious response on several levels. Woman, he says, 
what does this have to do with me? Now, sort of on a surface level reading, that sounds like the kind of response to your mama that would get you jack slapped by your pappy where I come from. (laughs) And honestly, there is a little bit of brusqueness to it. I don't think it's as rude as it sounds. Scholars said that the word that he uses here is a lot closer to the southern ma'am than it is to to the woman with an exclamation point that we tend to read it as. That's not what it would have meant. But it isn't the normal thing that you would have said to your mother. They all acknowledge that. There's definitely a kind of distancing of himself from his mother. And he is pushing back a little bit on what she wants. Try to imagine this encounter. Just one of the human interest pieces to this story to me is, is trying to imagine it from Mary's perspective. This is, this is the woman who gave birth to this man. She nursed him herself from her own body. She's the one who would have taught him how to walk. She's the one who would have held him when he fell and skinned his knees. She's the one who probably by this point had come to depend on him for her life. It seems like Jesus' father is nowhere in the picture. Perhaps he's died. That's what most people assume. Jesus was the oldest son. He would have been the one that she depended on. And she was there when the angels sang of his birth. She knew what kind of power he had. At least in some way she knew it. And it makes sense that she would turn to him in her hour of need. But she's learning here, up close and personal, that Jesus has grown into a responsibility that is not limited by the bounds of his family. That he belongs ultimately not to his mother. That there is no inside track to his grace, no family discount, no special attention. That ultimately he is not the son of Joseph and Mary, but the word who's made flesh, who must be about the business of his father. And nothing can thwart that business. Mary's response to Jesus, did Jesus sort of push back here? I just take it as a beautiful picture of faith. Her response is not to nag him. It's not to get angry at him. It's not to, I don't think we should read it as a condescending sort of assumption that he'll come around. Her response is simply, do whatever he tells you. She trusts Jesus' power, but also his goodness, his wisdom. And in response to her faith, Jesus acts. There are six jars somewhere close by. It's one of those details that almost screams for the for the first-hand eyewitness testimony that John is, is proposing to offer to us. It sort of confirms the book's claims about itself that this is by a guy who was there. Six jars. They were meant for purification, for water that you would have used to wash yourself before religious ceremony. Jesus puts them to another use. Fill the jars, Jesus says. And they do it all the way up. Notice the details. Fill them up to the brim. We're not told what happens next. It's one of John's techniques as a storyteller. He leaves some to you in your imagination to fill in the gaps. What we're told is that they fill up to the brim these jars and that the next thing they know, they're taking wine straight to the master of the feast. We're not told how the transformation happens, but it's not tough to imagine given the way that Jesus has been described already. 
in this book. One of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry, I, I came across a, a quote by him about this passage recently. He said, whoever really has considered the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and pondered the improbability of their existence will hardly balk at the turning of water into wine. The point is, the same power that spoke the world into existence is on display here when the water starts out as water and by the time they draw it out, it's something else. We've already been told that Jesus is the word through whom is life, through whom nothing has been made, without whom nothing has been made that is made. And here he is, up to it again. He tells him to draw out the water, to take it to the master of the feast. This is the guy who was sort of the, the party captain, right? He was in charge of making sure, maybe the MC, the, the guy who's in charge of making sure that things go well. Take it straight to him. He tastes it and he scolds the bridegroom because it's so delicious. He says, you, you, you start with the good stuff and then when people don't know what they're drinking anymore, then you bring out the bad stuff. But you started with, with wine that can't compare to what I'm tasting now. He has no idea where it came from. And the groom doesn't try to enlighten him. Notice the groom, he just takes credit for it. Like, yeah, yeah what, what can I say? We found a great supplier. The payoff of the, of the story, though, is straightforward. There's no missing it. By his grace, Jesus has transformed the devastating shame of this family into unprecedented gladness. He has taken one of the defining parties of their life and he has taken it to another level. Now, we're told in verse 11 that this is the first of his signs. We're told right here that this is not just a story of Jesus' power. It means something even more. It is something of a campaign announcement, of a this is what I am about story. It's a sort of parable or a clue in a treasure hunt, a symbolic pointer to Jesus' significance for us. So why is it so seemingly insignificant? I mean, I don't know if you, maybe you didn't read it that way, but to me, compared to a lot of the other things we see Jesus doing later, if, you, if you're familiar with where the story is going, this seems like an odd place to start. It was very significant for this one family, but only a few people even knew. His disciples believed in him, but we're not even told that the servants did. We don't know what they thought about it. No earth-shaking display of power here. There's no obvious dramatic effect he just took a disappointing party, was fizzling out, and he took it to the next level. How is this a sign of what Jesus came here to do? That's the main question. That's, the, that's what I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking together. I think the key to recognizing how this story works as a sign of what Jesus is about, the key to that, to seeing it, is in the dramatic tension. There's one particular moment, the central tension in this story that's got to be resolved. And we identify that and how it works. I think we get, a, we get a clue to seeing how this story functions as a sign. And the tension, you've probably already noticed it, the tension that we're drawn into here is Jesus' encounter with his mother. His response is so mysterious. We just blew right over it earlier. We've got to go back to that and unpack it a little bit better. 
I mean, how is, how is his response to her and even an answer to her question? What is this stuff about his hour not yet coming? How is that a response to her request to get more wine for their party? I mean, I can understand one sense in which it could be a response. Maybe the surface reading of it as you're just going right through it is that Jesus is saying, no, I can't make this water into wine. I can't, I can't provide more wine for you because it's not time for me to sort of come out as a guy who can do these sorts of miracles. It's, time, it's not time for me to be on the stage in this powerful way. But then he goes ahead and does it, right? So that's where the tension is. Do we really want to think about Jesus as just sort of bending to a nagging mother? You can imagine her almost, as one painted this picture, you can almost imagine her saying, Jesus, no, Mom, Jesus, no, Mom, not now, Mom, Jesus, okay, I'll do it. But come on, that's not, that is not the picture of Jesus that's going to come out through this story. I think we owe him the benefit of the doubt here. That's not the way it went down. So, so what happened here? One of the clues is, and this phrase about his hour. Again, I mentioned, I don't sort of first blush through it. You're probably thinking, he's simply saying, my time has not yet come to do miracles. But if you've read through the gospel before, you start to recognize that this hour has a very specific meaning in the gospel of John. That any time Jesus says, refers to his hour, which he'll go on to do several more times throughout this book, He's referring to the moment of his death every single time. His disciples wouldn't know that yet here, but John knew it when he was writing it. Jesus is saying, in effect, I can't give you more wine for your party because it's not time for me to die yet. Something about his death is the key to him being able to supply the wine that will be the key to a, to a joyous party that will, you know, the, the, the party to end all parties that's described here. He says he can't supply the wine because it's not time for him to die. Then he supplies the wine. I think what, we meant to, what we're meant to see is that Jesus is not thinking about this wedding. That Jesus, when he responds to his mother, has something else on his mind. There's some other wedding for which he's not ready to supply wine yet. There's a book on the resource table back here. I think it's still on there. It's called Encounters with Jesus. It's by a pastor called Tim Keller. Um, it's, uh, it's mostly taken from John. Uh, chapters describe different, way, different episodes in John where people are encountering Jesus and what they learn about him. It has a chapter on this story that's really helpful. One of his observations about this moment of tension, about what was Jesus thinking when he said he couldn't give wine because it wasn't time to die, then he goes ahead and gives wine. Keller says he's thinking about the same thing all of us think about when we're single and at somebody else's wedding. What are we thinking about? We're thinking about our wedding. Haven't we all had that experience? I mean, even as a married person, that's often what I'm thinking about. It reminds me back to the wedding that I had. Something about the beauty of a wedding ceremony that you have to personalize it somehow. Even though you're there to celebrate somebody else, all of us are personalizing it. Jesus was fully human. No reason to expect he would not have been subject to that same tendency. 
So here he is observing the beauty of this wedding, but on his mind is something else. On his mind is his wedding. And he can't have his wedding, he can't supply the wine for his party until his time for death has come. There's plenty of reason to think this is exactly what he had on his mind. One of them is just how much John loves to pull Old Testament imagery, symbols from the prophets into his storytelling. He doesn't always quote from these stories, but they're there. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Because one of the Old Testament's most common references, or descriptions rather, of the relationship between God and his people is of husband to wife, And one of the common visions that the prophets have for the the golden age that Israel was waiting on, the age in which there would be perfect peace, was of a wedding, of the rejoicing between bride and bridegroom. Just a couple of references. I love Isaiah's language on this. Isaiah chapter 62 verse 5 refers to the time when the bridegroom, refers, refers to the fact that as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. It's the end of the book. Isaiah's looking ahead. This golden age when Israel's sin will be handled once and for all and all will be perfect peace. And the way he thinks of it is as the moment of rejoicing where God who is bridegroom rejoices over his pure, gleaming bride. John knows this. One of the reasons John later on in our book calls Jesus the bridegroom. He explicitly calls him that in chapter 3. And then John, almost certainly same author, writing the book that's now at the end of the New Testament called Revelation. When he gets to the very end of that book, same guy, thinking about the end of the world, the golden age that's been promised, the one that God's grace will make possible. You know the imagery he's using? Same imagery. The imagery of a wedding, of a bride coming to her bridegroom. Revelation chapter 19 says, Let us rejoice and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. That's Jesus' wedding it's talking about. And the bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the party Jesus has in mind. Revelation 21 says, The angel says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then then here's the picture. He carried me away, John writes, in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Imagine a bride coming down the, the aisle to her bridegroom. And that's the picture that's drawn for us here. Perfect. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. That's Jesus' wedding that John is describing. That's what Jesus had on his mind when Mary asked him to take this party to a new level. And he knows. He knows that for his wedding to happen, it's going to cost him his life. And he knows that time hasn't come yet. What I can't do is bring in my wedding, he tells Mary. My hour is not yet come. What I will do, he goes on to show, is give you a little bit of a taste. In the fact that Jesus turns water to wine, in this part of the story, we have a sign of what Jesus came to provide, of what those who are married to him will enjoy when he comes for us. I want to point you to two details that fill this picture out. One, first detail 
is the fact that, that Jesus uses jars for purification. In John's stories, no details are random. Pretty much no details are random. He, he loves to pull images from the Old Testament into his story to help us see Jesus as the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was looking ahead to. So one of the things that's all through the Old Testament is, the, is the, what's built into the system that Israel used just for its, its worship and its piety is the notion that we are not clean in the way that we need to be because of our sin and that for God to come into our lives in the way he was made to, the way we were made to, to enjoy him, we've got to get clean. Got to wash the cup out before it's filled up. That's what the sacrifices were about. That's what all the ritual purity laws were about. That's what these jars here were for. That's what they symbolize in this story. And when Jesus says, fill them up to the brim, commentators see in that Jesus pointing to the fact that in him, in his coming, here's the sign. In his coming, he will fully and completely purify his bride once and for all. He will take what is unclean and he will make it clean. Surely this resonates with us, right? At some level of our experience. As hard as sin can be to recognize in yourself, to sort of sense as your problem and not just somebody else's, all of us, in one way or another, experience what it is to be less than what we wish we were. How much of our work is driven by a fear that we won't measure up? How much of our, how much of our fear is driven by a sense that we have ruined our lives already? How much of our guilt comes from the feeling that we've done things already in our lives that can't be undone and that will define us forever? How much of our insecurity is rooted in the knowledge that we are not and can't be what we wish we were? We know what it is to need to be cleansed. And the promise here, the sign in this story, is that Jesus has filled it up to the brim. He has accomplished purification once and for all, for all those who trust in him. There's more, though. This much we could have learned just from John's statement earlier, John the Baptist, when he called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've already seen that part of what Jesus came to do is to get rid of the sin problem that all of us have. There's more, though. And this is really the most significant point, I think, of this story. The essence of the sign here of what Jesus is about. Remember, this is the sign he chose to kick off his campaign. This is how you're going to know what he came for. He came to take a party to another level, to make sure it goes on and on. He came to bring you a new taste beyond anything you've experienced. This story is all about pleasure, about sensation, right? Think of the, 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 the way it's highlighted, just how delicious this wine was. It's unlike anything they've tasted before. Jesus came to give you joy you've never even imagined. If you want to summarize the point of his coming, there's no better way to do it than to envision the party that he came to make possible. He came to give you a taste of something that maybe you've only heard about so far. You know the difference between hearing how good something is and actually experiencing it for yourself. I remember the first time I heard about Coco's Italian Market and how delicious the pizza is. You guys know about Coco's? It is awesome if you haven't been there. And I also vividly remember the first time I tasted it. That's a different experience. It's one thing to know because you trust who told you that something is good. 
that it's delicious, that it's filling. Maybe not nutritious, but you won't mind because it's so good. And then, and then have the experience of actually putting it in your mouth and tasting it, of having your, your taste buds just come alive by it. You know that experience. You also know that the Bible is full of descriptions, of the, or, or full, of, full of the call, rather, to taste God and to know his sweetness. Think of the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Think of how often the sensations of food and drink, of even sex, are used of the relationship between God and his people. That the joys, the pleasures that you know in those, in those sensations, they are a faint and only a faint representation of what you will know when you taste and see that the Lord is good. But how much of that taste have you actually experienced? What Jesus came for, what his first sign points to as his purpose was to bring a taste of the goodness of God into your life. When Jesus said that he couldn't supply the wine because the hour of his death hadn't come, he was thinking ahead to the wine that his death would give to his people. When he turned water to wine, he was pointing ahead to the satisfaction that he would give to his bride. A satisfaction that his bride would not get anywhere else. And when he looked ahead, he was looking ahead to you, where you sit right now, and the promise that his death would make possible for you, that if you will come to him, you will know what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good. One of my favorite Old Testament background passages for this story There's a bunch of them, but one of my favorites is Isaiah chapter 25. Remember, John, one of the things we started with with John, he loves bringing in the Old Testament. The key to understanding Jesus is to understand what the Old Testament taught Israel to expect. And one of the things that the Old Testament, one of the drums that's beat over and over again there, when looking ahead to the joy that Jesus would bring, to the joy that the Messiah would bring when when he brought in the new age, was a feast with great wine. Over and over it's used. That the sensation of delicious wine is the best thing, the closest thing I can come to what you'll experience then. So now taking this story, Jesus coming to take a party to another level, thinking about his wedding, what do you think, one of the things he's thinking about is Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, Isaiah promised... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, the shame, The guilt of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. For now, we look ahead to that day and we realize, right? We realize all too well that that day seems far away. Seems out of reach. 
The joy Jesus here claims to have brought for us is still not something we taste in its fullness. But friends, there is a joy to be had now, along the way. While we wait for Him, there is joy to be had now. And one of the surest paths to that joy is to think carefully, prayerfully, on the image that Jesus gives us of what He has brought, the sweetness of what He offers to us. One of the surest paths to tasting the joy that's meant for us in the future, to tasting it now, is to think carefully and prayerfully about the picture Jesus has given to us of what he has done, of how he loves us, of what he will provide to us. So in this instance, the setting being a wedding, knowing that Christ was thinking as he sat there and enjoyed that wedding feast, he was thinking about his own wedding. I want you to think now about the fact that when Jesus thinks about his wedding, he thinks about you. You, where you're sitting right now. You, if you trust in Christ, are his bride. One of the sweetest things so far about being a pastor is getting to be part of weddings of people that I love. I never so much enjoyed going to weddings before I was a pastor. I enjoyed my own. But other than that, pretty much don't enjoy them. But I love being in weddings. Because you get to relive a little bit of the, the, the almost inexpressible energy and joy that happens when the doors open and the bride comes in. You get to stand right next to the groom and kind of feed off of his energy when he marks her and knows she's coming to him. There's something thrilling about it. And when Christ looks ahead to what he came to, to buy for us by his death. He looks ahead to a wedding, which is to say, he looks ahead to his bride, which is to say, he looks ahead to you. And he looks to me. He looks to me with all my pride, with all of my selfishness and my insecurity, with all of my ingratitude, with my cold-hearted apathy towards him. He looks to me and he rejoices because by his death he has made me white, clean, pure. And at his coming he will fill me up with a joy that nothing else in this world has ever been able to provide to me. How would you see yourself differently if you saw yourself through Jesus' eyes? How would you see other people differently if you saw them through Jesus' eyes? How about this? Another image I came across for this this week is from a a pastor called Ed Clowney from a sermon that he preached 30 or 40 years ago. He preached on this passage. He interpreted it in the same way. Jesus is at this wedding thinking about his own wedding. And he said something that I think is just so beautifully relevant for each and every one of you who are struggling to know any joy, much less a taste of this joy. This won't fix you, but it'll be something you can hold on to while you wait.
Clowney said something like, Jesus sat at this wedding, sipping sorrow in the midst of joy, thinking about his death, so that you could sit now in the midst of sorrow and sip the joy that's waiting for you. The only thing you need, friends, to taste right now and to taste fully one of these days what Jesus came to provide for you is you need the same despair, the same despair that these poor bride and bridegroom knew, the despair of having a wine of joy of life in you that is run out, wine that you cannot replace. And you need to be willing, one has said, to take credit, just like the bridegroom did, for what Jesus offers to you. Realizing that you have nothing is the key to gaining everything that Jesus offers you. He offers it to you right now, if you will trust in him. And you can know here, right now, in part, what we will all know for all of eternity when our bridegroom comes for us. Let's pray. Father, we long.